Chapter thirty eight of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty eight Tinker Breaks His Tryst. On the next day after Jane's long conversation with Tinker, Morton Blake received the following brief note just as he was beginning his breakfast. Humphrey Vargas's daughter, Mrs. Barnard, who called upon Mr. Blake a few days after her father's trial, will take the liberty of calling again today at half-past two o'clock. She earnestly begs Mr. Blake to receive her, as she has a communication of the utmost importance to make to him. This was a startling letter for Morton Blake. He had supposed until this moment that Mrs. Barnard had gone quietly back to America soon after her father's fate had been decided and here she was at his door, eager to make some mysterious communication, perhaps to goad him to that course of action which was always present to his mind, but from which he shrank with ever-increasing horror. Since his conversation with his aunt, his heart had inclined more to mercy than to vengeance. She had shown him the story of the past in a new light, his father the betrayer rather than the betrayed, his father's violent death a savage act of vengeance and not a cold-blooded murder was it indeed thus that stern justice holding her inflexible scales between the murderer and the murdered would compel him to consider that crime which had smitten walter blake in the flower of his age and left the son who so fondly loved him fatherless his blood boiled within him when he remembered that cruel death but when he thought of a husband's wrongs a bosom friend betrayed, he could almost have pitied the assassin, and to strike Sir Everard would be to crush Dulcie, to inflict a life-long grief upon that tender loving heart, to poison the current of the fair young life, to blast every joy and every hope of the innocent soul. Could he do this? He, Morton Blake, who had so dearly loved her, who believed that he must go on loving her till the end of his days? No, his hand should not strike the blow, his lips should not utter the words which were to wither the life that was so precious to him. Whatever his duty to the dead might be, his duty to the living was even more sacred. He had seen the whole thing in a new and holier light since he and Dora Blake had spoken together plainly. That long, weary illness, and the still more weary return to health, had given him ample leisure for self-communion, for thinking out the question of the future in its every aspect. Perhaps that awful consciousness of having been so near death had also exercised a softening influence upon his mind, and helped to bring about the change of feeling which had arisen since the October night when he paced the gardens at Fairview, thirsting for the blood of his father's murderer. My poor, sweet, loving Dulcie, he thought, full of tenderness for his lost love, let me think how my father, the most chivalrous of men, would have me deal with you, could he see our position and all its difficulties. Would he bid me avenge him at the price of your broken heart? Would he, whose one sin was to have loved your mother too dearly, have her daughter's life blighted? In such a mood as this, Morton Blake looked forward with the utmost distaste to his interview with Mrs. Barnard. He decided upon receiving her, and hearing all she had to say, but he was predetermined as to his own course. He had come of late to face the future with a settled purpose to make the best of a life out of which, as he believed, all gladness had gone for ever. 
he saw no possibility of happiness no prospect of new ties he had loved and done with love he had outlived all passionate hopes all tender dreams but happily ambition which he called the desire to be useful to his fellow-men was not dead in him the embers of that manly fire had burned very low but elizabeth hardman had fanned them into flame encouraged by her he had taken up the theme of national education which had always been near his heart at first he had worked with a dull stolid determination to plough through his subject however faint his interest however weary his soul but very soon that earnest love of work which was in his very nature had asserted itself and toil and study had again been made sweet to him i think now that the dearest hopes of my life have been disappointed i am just the right kind of man for the house of commons he told lizzie hardman a machine capable of so many hours work every day with no foolish longings for leisure or the sweet frivolities of domestic life a man made of cast iron and always in working order and now just when he had become wholly absorbed in public work and when the idea of the approaching contest at blackford had put darker thoughts out of his mind here was jane barnard with all the painful associations that were inseparable from her name she was shown into morton's study where he was sitting at his desk alone he had been unable to go on with his work in nervous expectation of her coming and had spent a comparatively idle morning reading first newspapers and then books in a desultory way which was the very reverse of his usual method i did not like to refuse to see you he said rising to receive her and motioning her to a chair opposite his desk yet i would gladly have avoided an interview which can only result in pain to both of us please state as briefly as you can the facts which you wish me to know i will not be longer than i can help but i must tell you the story almost as it was told to me and i must tell you the kind of man from whom i heard it and then deliberately and clearly she described the surgeon's groom his dismissal and his departing boast about sir everard she told morton how her curiosity had been roused by this mention of sir everard's name she already believing him to be the murderer and how she had met the man later and got from him the whole story of his suspicions she grew more energetic as she proceeded with her statement her eyes fired her cheek glowed with suppressed passion she expected to find a responsive warmth in morton blake but to her surprise and mortification she found him cold as ice do you believe this story he asked why should i not it agrees with my own suspicions i have never forgotten what i was told by a person who was present at my father's trial he described the counsel's cross-examination of sir everard and how he looked when those questions were asked this story of the lost spur tallied curiously with shafto jebb's assertion that the man who killed walter blake was on horseback and had jumped the hedge after the murder but in spite of this correspondence between the two stories morton affected to laugh the groom's statement to scorn who is to believe a drunkard and a thief against a gentleman of sir everard's position if the fellow had been an honest man he would have come forward at the inquest and told his story the man's character is bad enough but that cannot alter the fact i believe he has told the truth and he is prepared to make his statement before a magistrate if 
Mrs. Barnard hesitated a little, feeling that she was about to weaken her case. If he is paid for his trouble. Oh, yes, of course. The fellow has trumped up this story in order to trade upon it. He knew who you were, knew that you were inclined to suspect Sir Everard, and he's invented this story to get money out of you. I wonder you could be so easily gulled. Oh, you're mistaken, Mr. Blake. He did not know who I was until he had hinted at the knowledge of Sir Everard's secret. I told him my name then to convince him that I was in earnest. But you can help me if you like. You must help me. This time I will take no denial. It's your duty as your father's son to sift this story. I want you to see and hear this man, and judge for yourself. How and when am I to do that? asked Morton reluctantly. He was horrified at this new revelation, worthless as he affected to consider it. Now, oh, immediately, yes, said Mrs. Barnard, glancing at the clock on the chimney-piece. It is five minutes to three, and I told him to meet me on the common in front of your gates at three o'clock. Will you come with me and meet him? Morton took up his hat and went out with her through a French window opening into the garden. They went across the lawn and out at a wicket-gate. There lay the common before them, a wide, breezy expanse, with nothing higher than a furze-bush to obscure the view. There were some cows feeding, jingling their bells as they moved slowly over the short turf. There were some village children in the distance playing on the edge of a gravel-pit. But of Tinker, the groom, there was no trace. "'Oh, you won't mind waiting a few minutes, will you, Mr. Blake?' Jane Barnard asked piteously. "'I don't mind waiting an hour. Having once consented to see the fellow, I am prepared for anything.' but it looks very much as if he were not coming." Mrs. Barnard made no answer. She looked across the open landscape, where there was no sign of any approaching figure which even delusive hope might mistake for Tinker. Could he mean to play her false? Oh, surely not, when he had so much to gain by aiding her projects. Rigid punctuality was hardly to be expected from a man of his class, unprovided with any timekeeper in the shape of a watch. Morton walked slowly up and down the turf in front of the sunk fence which divided the manor-house grounds from the common. He walked to and fro, busy with his own thoughts, and taking very little notice of Jane Barnard, who sat on a hillock, watching the road that led from Osthorpe to the gates of Tangley Manor. In this silent way, each full of care and thought, they waited for an hour. Four o'clock, said Morton, looking at his watch. I think I've given your witness a fair chance. You have evidently been fooled by a rogue who played upon your feelings. I am sorry for you, because I believe you are honest in your assertion of your father's innocence. But I can do nothing to help you, and I must beg that you will not make any further appeal to me. You would only worry me without doing yourself any good." "'He must have been bribed to keep away!' exclaimed Mrs. Barnard, almost frantic with disappointment and mortification. He must have gone to Sir Everard after he left me last night, and sold his evidence to a higher bidder. Yet after what he told me of Sir Everard's treatment of him, that seems incredible. One thing is very clear, said Morton. He has cheated you. Good morning. 
he turned on his heel and left her to go back to osthorpe cruelly disappointed she had believed herself on the threshold of success and now she seemed as far away from her end as ever and she began to think that she must once more resign herself to the knowledge that she had failed in her mission and go quietly home again by the ship in which she had intended to sail until last night's revelation had altered all her ideas End of chapter 38